a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 50, starting our coverage of cover date April 1978 with Star Wars issue number 10. Hello, time travelers. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I am here to talk with you about a trip I have made back in time to January of 1978, where I've picked up a rather significant handful of comics. Now, I won't be giving full coverage to all these comics because some of them are not, strictly speaking, licensed titles, Um, but there are, well... We'll, we'll get to it when we get to it, but they are spun out of a licensed book, and one of them happened because of a licensed book. Uh, what we are going to be looking at, as I pulled out the the poly bag that has my slip of paper and my comics in it, we'll be looking at Star Wars issue number 10. That'll be this segment, and then the following segments, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 11, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, number 9, Man from Atlantis, number 3. And, of course, the Human Fly, issue number eight. Uh, The other thing we'll be looking at, well, it'll be two issue number ones, and then we'll be taking a peek at Marvel Premiere, issue number 41. Those three comics, the two number ones, and then that Marvel Premiere, issue number 41, will be uh, looked at in the, the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin segment at the end of our coverage of April 1978. Uh, cover date April 1978 from Marvel were released on the shelves, on the spinner racks, and on the magazine racks of your local Five and Dime or your local gas station, or in my case, at this point in time, my local Stoppy Shoppy, uh, in January of 1978. So, Happy New Year! We are in 1978. It is January, and it's very, very cold, at least where I went. It was very, very cold. I mean, I'm going to go into the areas where I'm familiar. And so going back in time to 1978, I'm headed back in time, but I'm also going up north to Sundridge, Ontario, where I grew up. And that's where I decided to spend my my 2015 dollars. on some comics in 1978, creating a paradox in which money that should not exist at that point in time now exists at that point in time. And who knows, maybe it will show up again somewhere. Someone will find this old, old, old quarter and dime from 2015 that should not look as old as it is. It should only be, you know, a year or two old because it's the present day. But enough thinking about time paradoxes and uh, using money that is not meant for the time period that is spent in, it's time for us to to read some comics and, and we've got some. 
I'm, I'm, hmm. I'm going to say that I am, I'm cautiously optimistic about this month. We are wrapping up a story arc with Star Wars number 10. Uh, the segment at the end of this coverage, uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, uh, is actually coming after the wrapping up of a, of a giant story arc from last issue. And Godzilla number nine, I don't know where that's going to be going. Man from Atlantis number three, um, I'm just going to continue reading that as if I'm reading the television adventures of Aquaman. Um, Human Fly, again, it's, I have no idea what to expect from all these. And then, of course, in Ben's bullpen bulletin, when we look at those two number one issues, which I'm just going to say it right now, they have a lot of potential, a lot of potential. Uh, but for right now, it, let's just get started and, and take a look at Star Wars issue number 10. With a cover price of 35 cents and a cover date of April 1978, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this was released on the shelves January 10th of 1978. Uh, there's six, 17 pages of story, and this is wrapping up what I'm calling Han Solo's Magnificent Seven in Space storyline, a four-issue uh continuing story that basically takes the Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai and or <laughs> A Bug's Life or Battle Beyond the Stars basically takes that story that has been used in so many places and repurposes it for Star Wars. Now, to be fair, about that time, you know, 1978, it had been used a few times, but not nearly as many times as as we've seen it show up in in pop culture now, you know, 40 years later, basically. And what this does is um, Han Solo has his team of people and that team of people. Well, well, first of all, let's talk about the real team behind this, not Han Solo's team, but Roy Thomas's team. Actually, no, <laughs> I should play the sad trombone here. Wah, wah. Roy Thomas's team is no longer Roy Thomas's team. Um, Howard Chaykin is still there as artist and co-plotter. And Tom Palmer is there as co-artist and embellisher. And Alan Cooperberg is there for layouts. So I have no clue how this breakdown of the art team really works. Because so then you also have a colorist, uh, F. Mooley. And then Jay Costanza is the letterer. Roy Thomas is credited as editor and co-plotter. So this is just a mess of names here. Uh, Don Glutt is the scriptwriter. My guess, based on what I know of how the Marvel method worked and how Roy Thomas was working at the time, Roy Thomas, Howard Chaikin, they had come up with this original story idea. Roy Thomas had the outline. The outline went to Howard Chaikin, who did the, the breakdowns, who did very, very, very sketchy breakdowns. Alan Cooperberg came in taking the breakdowns and made actual layouts that could then be embellished and inked by Tom Palmer. After all that was done, again, this is all my perception of how things work and how things possibly did work for this. But after this all was done, they brought in Don Glutt to write in the scripting for the rest of the story. Basically, then, this is Roy Thomas being kicked off the book 
and they had to finish the story. Now, uh, you know, to be fair, we've got Roy Thomas there, and this is still finishing his story. And so I think the intention of his vision is here. Uh, the scripting, the dialogue, and all that kind of thing is not his, but it doesn't. But but it's it's his story, and and this is his ending for the story. And after this, he's done. He is out. And I've got some words that he has given about about being removed from the book, and his feelings about being removed from the book, and also his feelings about some of the other things that were happening outside of this book, because. There was two extended universe things happening for Star Wars. This comic book and then a novel called Splinter of the Mind's Eye that was uh, written by Alan Dean Foster, written, written by the man who actually wrote the novelization for Star Wars, even though George Lucas has cover credit for this, uh, similar to the way Gene Roddenberry had cover credit for writing the novel of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And Steven Spielberg had cover credit for writing the novelization of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, Alan Dean Foster is the actual writer of the novelization of the first Star Wars movie. He's also going to be writing the novelization of The Force Awakens, Episode 7. And he's also did the novelization for Alien. Um, I mean, he basically, if there is a sci-fi franchise, he had has probably been involved in doing some of the novelizations for it. But Don Glutt, by the way, speaking of novelizations, Don Glutt, who, who wrote the script, who, who scripted the, again, this is my interpretation of how things probably happen, but Don Glutt, who took the artwork and then added in the script for the story, uh, he wrote the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. And now he, he's written other comics and other film projects and, and, and novels and that kind of thing. But um, this is interesting that this would be his first, you know, dip into that, that Star Wars universe. But anyway, um, Roy Thomas, he is out of here after this. And uh, what I like to do is I like to judge these comics based on their story arcs to say if this is worth reading. And this is again, that first extended universe story arc. And what do we get? We get the remake of the Magnificent Seven. Now, Han Solo and his team. Well, who is his team? <laughs> there's a six-foot green robot named Jackson. Uh, there's a female mercenary who is very quick with a gun and very quick with her tongue. Uh, she's got a very quick wit and a very sharp tongue. There is Don Juan Quixote, who thinks he's one of the remaining few Jedis. There is a walking porcupine who can shoot his quills. There is, of course, uh, Chewbacca and Han Solo. And then there is a young farm boy who reminds Han Solo a little bit of another farm boy that he has fought beside in the past. And the only character here... Um, I mean, Don Juan Quixote, he is still alive. He was thought to be dead last issue. Uh, the only thing that is not alive anymore, um, who actually retains his uh, death status, I guess, is the farm boy's robot, which I was not sorry to see him go. However, I will say uh, in this issue, more people will be um, 
they'll be dead. <laughs> they will cease to exist. They will no longer be breathing. Um, they'll be done. And in, in a very gruesome way, actually, if you really think about it, this is kind of going back to, you know, that kind of family entertainment that wasn't going through the filter of family entertainment. Um, you know, it, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Han Solo and his team were brought into a village to save it from marauders, led by Sergi X Aragontas, uh, who is a mustached uh, 70s villain with green sunglasses. And they, while they were starting their first battle against this guy, um, an old man from the village off panel ran over to a place and started performing some sort of ritual and summoned a behemoth from below. That's what the cover tells us. And also we see on the cover that uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca are shooting at this monster. And Han Solo is yelling, keep firing, Chewie, or this whole planet is doomed. Not to mention us. And Chewbacca fires his weapon in agreement. This creature is basically, it's almost like a, a walking Komodo dragon. Uh, can, think, of, think of King Kong. Only King Kong is a Komodo dragon. And I think that gives it to you. He also has a some spines along his back. And the frontmost spines shoot a, some sort of laser, uh, some sort of blaster thing. And for the most part, the behemoth is attacking Sergi X and his men. He's not attacking Han Solo or the people of the village other than uh, as a unintentional consequence of knocking over rocks and causing landslides and that kind of thing. This creature is the gun. It has been fired. I don't know. This creature is not the gun. This creature is the bullet. He has been fired from a weapon. And there's nothing you can do about the bullet once it leaves the barrel of the gun. You can just kind of point it in the direction you want it to go. And, you know, depending on how good of a marksman you are, you're hoping that it's going to hit its target. Well, in this case, the beast's target is Sergi X and Sergi X's men. And it's kind of going toward that target, but it's not. Well, let's see. We're on page, what, one, two, three, four, five. The old man who summoned the creature is in three panels of this issue. And in the first panel, it's it's a splash page. And you kind of get he's kind of at the bottom there. And then you have two panels of him standing there with his arms raised and waving. And then after that panel, uh, Sergi X is flying out towards him and this great big giant foot <laughs> slams down and steps on both of them. Yes, Sergi X is done. The old man is done. And now the creature is just kind of doing what it is going to do. And what is it going to do? It's just going to rampage. It's meandering around the rocks. It's causing lots of trouble for the villagers and for Solo and his team. And so as Solo and his team kind of argue about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they're trying to decide, should we be heroic? This isn't what we're getting paid for. We're getting paid to take care of Sergi X and his men. His men have run away. Sergi X has been smushed. <laughs> Just done. Uh, what are they going to do? Well, Don Juan... He decides he's going to go and attack the beast with his lightsaber. And he's got the right idea because the beast is a little, you know, kind of scared of his lightsaber. And 
realizes the lightsaber is death for him. But the problem is, Don Juan is not. <laughs> the lightsaber is a threat. The one carrying the lightsaber is a feeble old man who probably doesn't have any kind of you know, force-sensing abilities at all. So the team does work together a little bit to stay alive together. But this is where Han Solo realizes, oh, the old man's got the right idea. He just doesn't have the physical ability to follow through on it. If only he was a little bit faster. If only we could get out there and help him quicker. And so <laughs> we get one of the weirdest scenes I have seen ever. I thought that Han Solo riding in to the rescue, like the cavalry, uh, on a bantha was weird and kind of goofy and funny, but also, you know, hey, it's a nice use of the Star Wars universe, right? Chewbacca picks up Han Solo under his arm and runs Han Solo toward the monster like, like he's running in for a touchdown. And they get to Don Juan. Chewie drops him, drops Han Solo. Han Solo takes the lightsaber. Now, like, he's passing it off in a, a relay race. Han Solo then, lightsaber in hand, runs toward the monster, stabs the beast in the belly, and then they all dive away as the creature dies. And then we have our resolution, our final page, where the young farm boy decides not to take his uh, money and instead chooses to stay in the village because the young pretty lady that Han Solo had seen earlier, uh, she actually is interested romantically in the, the young farm boy. Han Solo and the rest of his group take their meager earnings and head off Han Solo considering the fact that um, he's got the money, he can take care of the Millennium Falcon, and for only a minute, he got a little feeling of what it's like to be a Jedi Knight. Now, speaking of Jedi Knights, we do have one page of Princess Leia flying off to rescue uh, Luke Skywalker, because Luke Skywalker was looking for a place for them to have a new base, and he reported in and had something terrify him that he was shocked to see but then communications were cut off so now she's flying off to help him uh we get one page of that but that's you know it's a subplot we needed the the issue belongs to han solo and i have to say there's it's just some weird stuff so again some weird storytelling happening here Roy Thomas did his outline Howard Chaikin did his breakdowns or whatever it is loose loose sketches and they were trying to piece together from those loose sketches what this is supposed to be. And then you have Don Glutt coming in and trying to figure out from the artwork what they're supposed to be saying and everything. But the old man who summoned the beast last time just came out of nowhere. Not because it wasn't set up. It was set up. It's just when it actually happened, it was only in one panel. And they were, we were told what was happening. Uh, we weren't even really seeing what was happening. It would have been nice to have some setup. And then he's just... Stepped on with Sergi X. I mean, he called the beast to destroy Sergi X. That happened and that worked. Um, I just found it to be a really weird storytelling choice to kill off the old man. I guess it makes sense that, you know, let's kill him off rather than have something happen where it's like, oh, no, I can't control the beast now. Uh, the one person who could possibly, you know, put the genie back in the bottle 
got stepped on by the genie now and genie ain't going back. What this does is it goes then to these mercenaries who are there for the money. They have to choose. Are we going to fight this thing or are we going to get out of Dodge? And they do decide to do the heroic thing based on actually the example of that crazy old coot. Uh, But Han Solo, (laughs) you get this brilliant, wonderful, incredible, awesome Star Wars moment on one page, page, uh, I think it's 15. But on the previous page, you have this ridiculously stupid moment that if this was live action, I'm trying to think how how could they even possibly try and film this without everyone on the crew just thinking this is stupid. This is absolutely stupid to have Chewbacca physically lift under his arm on Solo and run him into the end zone. But the moment where he takes that lightsaber and where he runs forward with that lightsaber, it's a heroic moment. And he stabs. I mean, this is this is classic mythological storytelling here. This is him, you know, stabbing the underbelly of the beast with the magic sword uh, as he's running and just the body language of this guy as he's running. Uh, his you know his fist raised back behind him with the hand with the sword in the foreground and he's his he's you only see one leg he's running so hard that uh, his his other leg is is completely extended behind him uh, but he's running right towards us Chewbacca standing behind watching waiting uh, this moment and then the turn the page and it's the splash page of the beast dying this is some great stuff great mythological storytelling not just awesome story for a Star Wars moment, you know, where you have Han Solo with a lightsaber doing the Jedi thing. Very cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, You know who did not enjoy it a lot? George Lucas did not enjoy this a lot. And, you know, overall, that story, for me, it's hit and missed. It's good enough that I would give it a thumbs up. I do recommend the story arc. And, not just from the perspective of this is the first new Star Wars story to go out. You know, they after this, or I should say during this, you had the Alan Dean Foster, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. After this, you did have a few children's books that came out that had different adventures for Luke and the team and, and that kind of thing. But this was the first. And so on one level, it's really interesting you know, from just that creative storytelling franchise building historical view but the story itself it's a han solo story it gets into his character it looks at him as a mercenary it looks at him as a gun for hire and it looks at him as someone maybe who wants to go beyond gun for hire to becoming more you know hero and so it's worth reading, I think. I give it a thumbs up, but there's a lot of ups and downs with it. Jackson the Rabbit, it is stupid. I mean, I'm just going to throw that out there. It doesn't fit the universe. I know that this is where uh, I think Roy Thomas looked at Chewbacca and was like, well, they got a walking dog. Why not a walking ro- uh, rabbit? But then he also puts in the porcupine guy, too. I mean, this is kind of silly stuff. But yeah, like I said, as a riff on the Magnificent Seven, it works as a Star Wars story. It works overall a thumbs up. George Lucas was not 
too happy though. Um, in his article about um, uh, Star Wars, the comic that saved Marvel, or uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love Star Wars, or whatever, Roy Thomas is recalling his experiences with the Star Wars comic, and he says, uh, "We've read maybe some of this a little bit already, but as it progressed, I came to feel that Howard Chaykin." for whose artwork I had always had the utmost respect, wasn't giving his all on the pencil layouts. I learned later he was actually being ghosted part of the time by our mutual friend Alan Cooperberg, who was doing a creditable job, but Chaikin is Chaikin. Nobody else is. Howard is definitely one of the post-Silver Age great artists with American Flag, perhaps his greatest single accomplishment. So here we already have kind of this problem of who's, who's actually drawing this comic. And then one day I got the phone call from Charlie Lippincott. He informed me that George was unhappy with the way the storyline was going. I reminded Charlie that I cleared it in advance, but Charlie said that George thought it was too close to the Magnificent Seven. Who knows? Maybe it was. By the way, me, you know, interrupting the the flow of the quote here, but it is really close. It is really, really close. What's more, George particularly disliked one of the seven being a six-foot alien who resembled a green bug's bunny in space gear. In the latter instance, I have been inspired in part by seeing a porky pig-looking alien in the cantina sequence, either in the rough cut or on some production sketches at some early point. I don't remember if that alien appears in the finished movie, movie since that part of the film contains several 11th-hour inserts of other more colorful aliens sitting in dark corners. And something may have been cut to make room for them. I figured my green rabbit, Jackson, wasn't really much weirder than a Wookiee, but obviously George, as the creator of the Star Wars mythos, felt differently. I respected George and Charlie, but this line of conversation was beginning to annoy me. And then he goes on to talk about how Robert E. Howard didn't bother him because Robert E. Howard was dead. And so he could do Conan stories however he wanted to do them. And he wasn't going to be bothered by the person who actually created the universe. And then there was the money issue. I remember reading uh, from Howard Chaikin and how he was upset by the whole money situation. But uh, here's Roy Thomas also. He says, at the same time, I'll admit I was feeling a bit put off, too, regarding certain monetary ma matters. It was an open secret that Alan Dean Foster had ghosted the Star Wars novel that came out circa spring of 1977, even though the byline read by George Lucas. And that George had given Foster a sizable bonus when the movie proved a smash. And of course, everyone knows how George gave Mark Hamill... Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher valuable points in the picture as an after-the-fact gesture of goodwill. I didn't begrudge any of that quartet their good fortune. They all earned it. But I, who had fought to get Star Wars published as a comic book at the time when George and Charlie really, really wanted it adapted as a comic, had never received even a thank you or, more crucially, a single cent beyond my regular page rate from Marvel and $2 per page each time, or at least most times, that Marvel reprinted the first six issues. By pointedly asking Stan for a bonus at one point, I finally got an extra $500 for my Star Wars labors, but I wasn't exactly feeling appreciated on any front with regard to my work on the adaptation. Jim Shooter, who succeeded Archie Goodwin as Marvel's editor-in-chief some months after the Star Wars comic was launched, underscored my point in a recent interview in which he said that he was in a position to know that the Star Wars comic basically saved Marvel from going under in the late 1970s. I'll assume Jim knew whereof he spoke, and hence the title of this piece. 
Not that I had any true quarrel with Marvel, of course. Sure, it made formidable profits on the first six issues of the comic in particular, reprinting them over and over, then combining them into a pair of tabloid-sized specials and finally lumping both the tabloids into one volume. I just wanted a bit more of a taste of the profits. Even when I helped Marvel put together a black-and-white paperback reprint of the movie adaptation, I had to fight to get Howard Chaikin's and my name added to the cover, which originally was laid out to support only those of George Lucas and Stan Lee, who was credited for his special introduction. I became, shall we say, fairly vocal in my insistence that the name of the actual writer and main artist be added to that cover as well. Stan understood my point, and the change was duly made. Roy Thomas then goes on to talk about how he, you know, Alan Dean Foster gets this bonus, but all that Roy Thomas was getting was grief over, you know, the stuff that he was writing. And so he basically said, after issue 10, he's done, he's out. Please tell George it was fun being a part of things, but, you know, he wanted to end things on friendly terms. And that's where we're going to end things. Next issue will be Star Wars number 11, which will start off a new storyline of some sort. I don't know much about what's going to be happening from here. There's no green rabbit to cause fans to write articles about worst characters in the Star Wars universe. So I have no idea where we're going. I do know where I'm going next, though, in the next segment of this coverage of cover date April 1978 of the Marvel licensed sci-fi books, and that will be two... Man from Atlantis, number three. So um, we'll, we'll do that here in our next segment. Until next time, Godspeed, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, what Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, we resolve the cliffhanger from Man from Atlantis number two, with the very offbeat Man from Atlantis issue number three.